Hello and welcome to How to Build a Village. I'm Jill Martin-Wren and I am so happy to welcome Fanula Sweeney, who has been an anchor for many years with CNN International. She right now is an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at the Global Brain Institute, and she's currently in Dublin. But at CNN, she anchored primetime news and reported on major events all over the world. Fanula Sweeney, CNN, New York. Fanula Sweeney, CNN, Jerusalem. Fanula Sweeney, CNN, Atlanta. Before joining CNN from RTE, Ireland's national broadcaster, she hosted the 38th Eurovision Song Contest. The traditional greeting to visitors coming to Ireland is Cade Mila Falcha, 100,000 welcomes. But even that extravagant greeting is inadequate for this colossal event. The 38th Eurovision Song Contest and the biggest. So welcome, Fanula. Hi, Jill. It's good to talk to you. Well, it's so great to hear from you. And I'm so eager to talk to you here about your journey from Ireland to the US to UK and talk about what you learned about moving and how you were able to create such an amazing career. Well, I suppose my transitioning began at the age of 12 when my family um, decided, my parents, to leave Belfast, where myself and my siblings were born and raised and moved to Dublin, um, mainly because at the time the troubles, as they were known, were really quite bad and they were sort of reaching new heights. And I think my parents, who were originally from the South, as it's known colloquially, or the Irish Republic, uh, thought it was probably better in terms of life expectancy and other <laughs> for further reasons uh, to move to Dublin. So that for me was a, a huge transition. I, I, I think I repeated the first year at school when I moved to Dublin. I found it just uh, it was a it was like being on a different planet just in terms of references, conversations, formative experiences, and uh, I think I found it incredible that people. It seemed to me, to my 12-year-old mind in Dublin, were really not interested in what was going on uh, in the North, as it's colloquially called, or Northern Ireland. And that was just, that was the biggest transition, I think, in my life, frankly. And it took me quite a while to adjust. I think moving at any time can be tricky, but I think when you're on the cusp of, you're a preteen, you're on the cusp of being a teenager, it was just like, it seriously, it felt like it was a different planet. Would you say that transition and managing it helped you in later life or was it so traumatic was it a setback I I would say it had mixed a mixed impact I would say that I learned to cope a lot with adversity um I learned to cope with feeling there's a term feeling othered not deliberately feeling othered but I myself felt different to everybody uh all my reference points had gone uh, a life and friendships that I had built up had disappeared. But I think also I had gone from a situation which I only really recognized maybe ooh, 20, 15 years later had been actually a traumatic situation in growing up in, in, in Belfast in the sense that it was superficially normal, but it was not normal by any stretch of the imagination. And I don't think I appreciated that until many years later when I was living in London, um, working for CNN. And it was the end of the IRA ceasefire, I think in February 1996, if I remember correctly. And I think I just moved to London. And I just remember being brought back 
to, to that childhood of bomb scares, albeit this time along Oxford Street rather than parts of Belfast, roadblocks, checkpoints. And stories I've covered since, for example, in the Middle East, I, I while there, I learned about post-traumatic stress disorder, which I'd heard the term, but I'd always associated it with the military and coming back from war. But what I didn't realise was that it's possible to be in a situation which seems normal, but isn't. And one doesn't necessarily have to be directly impacted by it, but one just needs to know it's going on around and in the environment to have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that's what really was probably the jolt of moving from one situation to another situation beyond just being a preteen. Well, one of the things I always admired about you when we worked together at CNN is how you were able to stay calm under pressure and you would report live for hours, you would report live from war zones and never seem rattled. I mean, would you say this ability to to manage stress and to overcome stressful situations as a child? Perhaps. I don't think it's as related to that though, Jill, as much as I think I was always very careful about my own comfort zone in terms of going out on assignments for CNN. I, I remember being asked repeatedly if I would be interested in going to Baghdad after the, the, the Iraq war and um, during the Iraq war. And I knew in my gut that that was not a comfort zone for that was definitely not the right thing for me to do. And I think I learned that quite early on when I went out on assignment with CNN. I remember being in a situation in uh, the West Bank in Nablus very early on. And my gut instinct told me that there was a big problem with where I was standing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were bullets around and um, being, being fired. And it took me a while to kind of accept that I wasn't safe. You know, I think you, when you, you're a rookie and you go out in the field, there's a certain sense of having to be not scared. You feel that you can't, I felt that I couldn't let the side down on my first kind of assignment. And I remember this particular situation and I could see the bullets in the sand coming closer to my feet. I wasn't on my own, but by the time we got out, there was one point where I said, right, this is it, I'm done. This is not safe. And we wound our way back to where other journalists were. And I remember these two male Arab journalists just berating us like that we were crazy for ever even thinking of being in the situation where we were essentially between two opposing groups and uh and I that was a very very easy lesson in some ways very early on so if I take that and extrapolate it I was never really in a situation where even if there was trouble or there were bullets I never felt that exposed. The only time I felt that I was in danger, I think, was on the last day of the Israel-Hezbollah war. And I had been assigned to Haifa in northern Israel, and you could see the bombs, you know, coming from missiles coming from Lebanon and landing in the sea below. And on that particular day, we were in a we were based high up a hill, but everybody knew the seaside was coming that Sunday. And for the first time ever, these bombs, missiles started landing, literally coming up the hill towards where we were. I think both sides were just like letting the other side have it with everything they had until the ceasefire kicked in. So in terms of the long answer to your question about being calm, I think is I've rarely 
put myself in a situation where um, I've got caught in something. Uh, I think there were maybe, the, the, there was that incident in Nablus and I remember one in Gaza and that was as much as I needed to know. I remember after the incident in Gaza, a journalist that I'd seen earlier in the day for the first time, an older, well, middle-aged man, you know, had been shot at some point during the day. And I had remember seeing him smoke a cigarello <laughs> that morning with a necktie <laughs> and he nearly lost his life. And I remember thinking, this is so particularly dangerous. I mean, we were given training by CNN, so we, you know, we knew our limits. But I think for me, particularly, one of the abilities to stay calm was that I rarely felt, if ever felt, that I was in a situation where it kind of was, it was dangerous. It's amazing the places you've reported from. I mean, another aspect of your career I've always admired is just your adaptability. So here you've gone from working in war zones and keeping your cool to also having hosted the Eurovision Song Contest, which is uh, obviously different different type of pressure, but just being watched by more than 300 million people and, and greeting the people in three languages. So how do you manage to adapt and stay comfortable in all of these very different situations? Well, I think, I think, I mean, Eurovision was obviously before I went to CNN and came shortly before I went to CNN. I think I moved to CNN about seven months later. And I think a lot of people assumed at the time that they were directly linked, um, but they weren't really. In fact, if anything, hosting a popular song contest was not exactly what the you know, CNN management were looking for <laughs> in terms of, of reporters and anchors. But what it did do was proved that I could stand in front of an audience, a live audience, and also a wider audience of 300 million. And of course, for Ireland, it's a huge honour to, to host the Eurovision Song Contest. And I, and this was a this was a time after the Second World War. Not that I hosted it immediately after the Second World War, but you know the Eurovision Song Contest grew out of the EBU European Broadcasting Union, the ability to have live sa uh, satellite uh, transmissions and to kind of bring Europe together. Certainly in in Ireland, where I grew up, you know everybody down tools on a Saturday night and the whole family. It was a formative experience growing up. I think it set me up for live broadcasting with CNN, which was, of course, is, of course, 24-hour live um, news network. But other than that, I don't think it had a huge impact on, on my being accepted by CNN initially. I see. It's amazing where your career has taken you from, from walking through those flames when you, when you entered the, at the start of the show to reporting all over the world. Now, in terms of places you've lived, is there any one place that's felt more like home than another? I've really just lived in three cities, Dublin, London and Atlanta. I must say when I'm, well, four, if you include Belfast, obviously, but I must say that when I moved to Atlanta, I really took to it like a duck to water. I think I was very, very happy to be making a move at that time in my life. I adapted to Atlanta very quickly. It was a growing city. It was a burgeoning city. It was about to host the Olympics. And, and it's, it's, it still continues to grow. It was a, a great time in my life and I love being there. And when I moved to London, I found it actually very hard to adapt to living in London, partly because you know yourself, Joel, you know, sometimes you'd say, what are you doing at the weekend? And some would say, oh, I'm booked up until November. <laughs> or we've got plans or we're going away and that's was wholly different to anything I knew in Dublin or Atlanta where you could just call in to see someone or weren't so formalized and I remember at some point I think after a year of flying to Dublin every single weekend I made a decision that I had to 
sort of do cold turkey and stick it out in London and, and make a life there. I suppose at the time, you know, I was working late, not so late in the evenings at that stage, but then I was working early morning. So it just took a while to adapt to living in London and to making a life there. But, you know, I think it was uh, after the bombings in July 2005 and I remember the mayor of London Ken Livingston saying we're all Londoners now and I actually felt that. I have watched this city transformed in my lifetime as a beacon about what the world can be and I hope and pray will be. It's a city that embraces change and it is a city which is the most tolerant in the world. I think once you've lived in London you'll always there'll always be a part of London with you it's it's such a great city in so many ways so what were the things you did when you when you made that concerted effort to to make London feel more like home what what sort of things did you do I think I I, you know I joined a gym that I really was very fond of for many years it was a it was a really great gym and it was a great uh, community gym I met um as any good Irish person does, you know, I, I would advise to do like got in touch with the Irish crowd in London. You know, there's always an Irish scene happening. And I, I did that and that helped. And some people think that's not a good thing to do because it, it keeps you tied to home. But in fact, anywhere I've been um, in, in Atlanta, there's a wonderful Irish community. It's just so helpful. Um, in in helping you make that transition because word of mouth even today in our digital age is sometimes the best recommendations you can have for anything and for settling and when I lived briefly in Washington a few years ago it was exactly the same thing so that those were so the the Irish network and just making a concerted effort um, you know people I worked with you know there was a great camaraderie at CNN if you remember yeah of course yeah, I think uh, that's part of the reason we're still in touch. It was just a great, uh, a great time, and so many talented people. It's uh, in- it was a great time at CNN International and the growth of CNN International because when I started at CNN International in Atlanta in 1994, it was so small. It had just broken away from CNN USA. And I think it was largely as a result of the success that it experienced with its coverage of the Gulf War. I remember there was an edit bay under the stairs. There was a stairwell and, and literally under the stairs, there was one edit bay. That's how small the operation was at that time. And then when you fast forward to 10 years later, um, 20 years later, the huge production bureau that CNN London became, I mean, it's just astounding. When I first arrived in London, it was to anchor. And I think there was one anchor there. I think that there, w- there was some programming coming out of London, but it was very limited. And there was uh, one program anchored by Hilary Baker for CNN USA and what I didn't understand at the time or I didn't appreciate was that there were, there were plans to develop London as a production hub but it was essentially known as the bureau news gathering bureau maybe a dozen 15 people 20 I think if you include the engineers but it was all based on news gathering that is reporters engineers assignment editors cameramen camera women producers it wasn't it wasn't a programming the massive production center that it became and now being um being back in Dublin how does that feel after having lived around the world 
it's purely because of COVID and lockdown. And my work is in Oxford at the moment uh, with the Atlantic Institute. Um, as you mentioned, I'm an Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health. And that led directly to this current role where the Atlantic Institute in Oxford really looks after fellows like me who've graduated their programs. And the Equity for Brain Health program is one of seven global equity-focused programs around the world, usually in health equity, racial equity, brain health equity, social equity, economic equity. And they're based in America, you know, San Francisco, George Washington University, Columbia University, through to Cape Town, Bangkok, LSE in London, and also Melbourne in, in Australia. And so being in Oxford in February uh, was an interesting time in 2020 because I had just come back from Thailand where there had been a graduation of fellows from the health equity program that's based in Bangkok and I had flown in there literally I think a day after it had been officially declared an emergency or I need to be careful of my choice of words here you know of course being a journalist but I remember even though it had been around in for a few weeks and some would argue several months that week that I flew, I remember thinking, am I doing the right thing? And I went to Thailand for four days. Um, I, I flew in on a Sunday and everybody was wearing masks at the airport. And on the Tuesday, I remember there was a sense that it had gone out of control. That was the kind of considered opinion of people I was with at the time who were doctors. And so I flew back to England and people were wearing masks on the flight. And I, I thought I'd better isolate for two weeks. So I worked from home for two weeks. And then it became a very virtual exercise rather than a kind of lived experience because after the two weeks, um, and I was fine, uh, people, if you remember, started getting sick in Italy. And it became a virtual experience because I was looking at it literally on my phone and you saw this coming across the globe from the eastern part of the world. And then it became a question of it coming to England. And then the first case was in Brighton. And then it became my world narrative. It became a case of coming to Oxfordshire, where I was living. And I, I remember at one point thinking, hang on a second, you were worried a month ago when you took a flight from Bangkok that you might have it. And, and here you are waiting for it to arrive on your doorstep. And I think it was early March, St. Patrick's Day, and I watched the Irish Prime Minister, who was then the Irish Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, make a speech. In years to come, let them say of us, when things were at their worst, we were at our best. Our country is making big demands of our healthcare staff and big demands of every single one of us. Tonight, I want you to know why these actions are being taken and what more needs to be done. And I watched it and thought, I feel vaguely homesick. <laughs> and. I need to think quickly about what we're doing. It's very clear that the university in Oxford was closing and uh, I decided really that I wanted to be where I felt needed and connection to place was something that I felt very strongly that I hadn't considered very often before because I've had this great, you know, time living in different cities and different countries. And but it seemed to me in a crisis I, I wanted to be where I felt safe, and I mean psychologically safe, I think, and also where I was needed, which is where family and friends are if something went wrong. And I think, you know, for us living in this part of the world, we haven't had something like this for a very, very, very long time. Not in my lifetime, I think, have we had anything that we've had to shut down like this for several months. So for me, lockdown has been interesting. I, the term in Ireland that's been used for older people hasn't gone down very well, but I kind of like it cocooning. My productivity has gone way up because I'm just two minutes 
from my laptop at any given point. <laughs> um, but I'm looking forward to getting back to normal, whatever normal may look like. Um, I don't think it will be too long once hopefully now a vaccine is, is up and running, uh, that we will be back to normal. I, I think it might happen sooner rather than later. I think the question will always be, have we learned the lessons that, that lockdown provided us in terms of lack of traffic, you know, damage to the environment, uh, commuting to work, work-life balance, if there is such a thing anymore, do we revisit that? So do you, where do you see yourself in the future? I have lived around red post boxes and red buses more than I have green ones, even though I am Irish. And I think I will be, I think, connected. I think I don't think, unless you are Irish, people can appreciate the, the close links between Britain and Ireland. Mm -hmm. I think at least six million people of Irish connection or descent live in England and I think Brexit isn't going to impact that too much uh, in fact the first woman to get a vaccine is an Irish woman oh. in Britain a 90 year old woman 91 year old woman I, I, I'll be in and around Dublin or London or Oxford not too far that's uh well, well that's great well thank you for your time Fanula it's always wonderful to hear from you Jill, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I think um, one of the things that I appreciate since I've left CNN, and I don't know whether you do, but that we we really, all of us had a shared bond and connection that even if people haven't seen each other for two, three, five years, there is that shared connection and the shared experiences that we had. Yeah, and I mean, it's such a pleasure to speak to you in this way, because you've always been an, an idol of mine. So it's so great to uh -huh be able to speak to you at length and to have you on the podcast. So thank, oh, Jill, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Thanks to everyone who joined us on this episode of How to Build a Village. We look forward to seeing you next time.